But I kind of got off mark a little bit. Sorry, I got on a little tangent there. I want to go back to my original comment about voting and the whole election process. Elections are always a very interesting event. During elections, you find people's front yards filled with, with dozens of signs, and the signs are encouraging you to vote for the homeowner's preferred candidate or preferred proposition. Every newscast is packed with polls about the various races and filled with commercials from all the different candidates. And what I find interesting is that, that the commercials rarely tell you what the candidate is going to bring to the table in orders of what is going to bless you and I as constituency, but instead they just rip their opponent to shreds through half-truths and, and innuendo and mudslinging. And when you look at the aspect of that process of elections, anyone who decides to run as a candidate for any office, you've got to admit, has a lot of guts. Think about it. The minute that you put your hat into the ring, your life is put under the microscope for everyone to see. From, the, from that moment on, people will scrutinize everything you do from your personal voting record to your driving record. They will carefully examine your family life your spiritual life, your stand on every issue under the sun. And then based on their scrutinization and their examination, the accusations will begin. Some will say you don't care about the poor, while others say you care too much for big business. Some will say you don't have the right morals, and others will say you have no morals at all. Some will say that, that you're too conservative, while others will say you're much too liberal. I don't know about you, but I would never want to go through that. The truth is, I don't think you could pay me any amount of money to pay me to run for public office. I'd much rather stay here and be your pastor. But the, oh, were you wanting me to run? No, just kidding. The reason I bring all of this up is because, as you know, we've been in this series where we've been dissecting the book of John, the gospel of John. And in this week's study of chapter 7, you get the feeling that Jesus is being treated like a political candidate. Some of the, co the comments that are made about him in this chapter sound very similar to the kinds of things that, that you would say to someone who was running for a political office. Jesus receives unsolicited advice that, on how to keep his poll numbers up, if you will, how to keep his approval ratings up. Others criticize him from ev for everything from the place that he grew up to the fact that he healed someone on the Sabbath. They question his education. They question his parentage, even his motives. So take your Bibles. Let's look at John chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, be, it'll be up on the screen behind me, and you can follow along. Today we're going to be reading verses 1 through 31, chapter 7, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. But when, he, when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here, for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. 
I am not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on his own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is no false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? I want to go back a bit, and I want to provide you with a little bit of context. The things that we just read about occurred six months after the feeding of the 5,000 and the great discourse that followed that we discussed at length in last week's service. You'll remember after Jesus' sermon, many of that great multitude and those that you would even consider his disciples who had followed him around everywhere, I'm not talking about the 12, I'm talking about the masses that followed him around, well, they ceased to follow him. It appears that Jesus talking and teaching about suffering and sacrifice and him being the bread of life was just too much for them, so they left. The opening words in chapter 7, John makes it clear that things have gotten worse because now actually there is a hint of murder in the air. Because the Jewish leaders in Judea, they were looking for a way to get rid of Jesus for good. They wanted him out of the picture. He was too great of a threat to their spiritual authority. John also tells us that the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. 
This particular feast of Israel occurred in early October, and it lasted for approximately seven days of length. And its purpose was to celebrate the Israelites' journey from slavery in Egypt to deliverance into the Promised Land. During this time, the inhabitants of Jerusalem would build small shelters made out of tree limbs, and their families would move out of their homes, and they would live in these shelters for those seven days. And it served to be a reminder to them of the 40 years that their forefathers had had wandered as pilgrims in the wilderness and lived in tents. Also during this feast, The temple area was illuminated by large candlesticks to remind people of the guiding pillar of fire that led their ancestors by night. And each day, the priests would go and gather water from the pool of Siloam, and when they poured it out, it also had great symbolism. It was to remind them of the miraculous provision of water that flowed from the rock that Moses had struck with his staff. Well, when the time of this feast drew near, Jesus' four half-brothers came to him. Matthew tells us their names. There was James and Jude, both who, after they came to faith in Jesus, authored two of the letters in the New Testament. The two others' names were Hoses and, and, and Simon. But also, please note that Jesus had sisters as well, at least two of them, but the scriptures do not give us their names. But the Bible clearly says that after Jesus' birth, God blessed Mary and Joseph with at least six other children of their own. Well, these four half-siblings apparently set themselves up as Jesus' self-appointed publicists or campaign manager, if you will. The advice that they offered him was something that you would hear given to a political candidate coming near an election time. In effect, they said to him, Jesus, you need a larger arena. Galilee is just too small for you. Why should you stay here in the backwoods, in in the sticks? You need to go down to Judea. You need to go to Jerusalem. That's the capital. That's the heart of this country. Furthermore, your your Judean brethren base, your following base, they need to see you again. Their faith needs to be supported, and it needs to be reinforced by witnessing miracles like the ones that you have been doing up here. You're being wasted out here. You need to get out of the back country, and you need to show yourself to the world. Well, Jesus did go to Jerusalem to the feast, but not with his fraternal campaign managers because he had sent them on ahead. Jesus secretly arrived later, and he did it this way because it was not yet for his time to be crucified. That would come at another time. That would come six months later at another feast, the feast of the Passover. But Jesus knew that already there was a constant danger of his assassination in Jerusalem. But he also knew that as long as he remained hidden, no enemy could find him. So he entered the city without attracting any attention, and he did so by blending in with the crowds. Meanwhile, there was a hushed anticipation that stirred debate among the people as everybody was wondering where he was. When would Jesus show up to the festival? Some favored him, but they kept their comments as quiet as possible out of fear of being overheard. 
by the religious leaders who they knew wanted to kill Jesus and perhaps even those who followed him. Well, Jesus didn't reveal himself until this feast was half over. When he stood up in front of a crowd and he began to preach, knowing full well that the officials would not do anything to him in public. They were smart enough not to do that. Now, as we look at the text and we hear the comments that were made by these, these, this first century crowd, you begin to realize that the same things said about Jesus that day are still being said about Jesus in our day and age. Some of the words are kind, while some of the words are harsh. But no matter how you slice it, they are just words that are spoken in order to divert from the real issue at hand. They are just nervous statements that people are making to help them to avoid having to make a decision, a personal decision about Jesus themselves. But eventually, ladies and gentlemen, as you know, every human being will have to answer this question. What do I do with this Jesus who claims to be the Son of God? I once heard the doctrine of election explained like this. God votes for you, the devil votes against you, and you cast the deciding vote. Well, many people who have wrestled with what to do about this Jesus, they've decided to cast a no vote. And they justify their decision by saying the same kinds of things that people said in chapter 7. And so this morning, I want to address some of these statements. As John points out, first of all, some people say Jesus was a good man. And they still say that today. Look at verse 12. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. They wouldn't go so far as to say that Jesus was the Messiah, God who had come in the flesh, but they would agree that he was a good guy. After all, he had been going around for three years doing all kinds of good things. He, he, he healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He brought sight to the blind. He made the lame to walk. And let me ask you, how many times have you heard people who you know are not serving the Lord say, oh, Jesus was a good man? They won't profess their faith in him as Lord and Savior or the Son of God, but they will say, he is a good man. Even Muslims, Muslims say that. They, to the point that they, they revere Jesus as a good teacher. This is one rare thing that you will find the Jews and the Muslims agree upon. They both believe Jesus was an especially good guy. But as Christ followers, as people who know Christ personally, we really can't go along with that statement. What I mean is we understand you just can't say that Jesus was a good man. Why? Because of the nature of his teachings. The most obvious thing you see in what Jesus taught is what John Stott calls their egocentric character. In other words, what he's saying is that Jesus' teachings were all wrapped up in himself. For example, he called God his father. He even had a special word for God. He called him Abba, which is our equivalent to the word daddy. Jesus also said because of what he would accomplish on the cross 
And only because of what he accomplished on the cross, other people could enjoy that kind of a personal relationship with God the Father as well. The egocentric nature or character of Jesus' teachings is also seen in his I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. As part of his teachings, Jesus called men and women to follow him. And then he sent them out on a world-encompassing evangelistic ministry. The things that, that Jesus said were so egocentric that he repeatedly said he considered the Old Testament to be written about him. Do you remember when he read words from the prophet Isaiah in Nazareth, that passage of messianic prophecy that you'll find again in Luke 4, 18 and 19. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then in verse 20 and 21, it tells us that he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's saying, this prophecy is about me, people. It's about me. So let me ask you, would he... Could he be a good man and say these kinds of things and do these kinds of things if they weren't true? I don't think so. By the way, Jesus said he had the authority to forgive sins. No mere man can do that, no matter how good he is. Another thing, Jesus repeatedly claimed to be God. So could he be good and make that claim if it were not factual? Would a good man tell people that he was the Messiah if he wasn't? Again, I don't think so. You really can't just say that Jesus was a good human being. That statement just won't fly. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis points, spoke of this when he said, I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Namely, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has, left that, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So you can't just say, that Jesus was a good human being because he was so much more than that. And that brings to mind other things that people have said about Jesus that day and say about him today. As I mentioned, some say he was a good man, but in verse 12, some say he was a deceiver. Look at the verse. 
It says, others replied, no, he deceives the people. They infer he was trying to trick people into believing that he was the Messiah. And today, we still have people who say Jesus was out to deliberately fool mankind. In their opinion, he wanted to con people into following him as the long-awaited Messiah, when in reality, he was just a man. And before I deal with this one, we have to admit that if Jesus was a deceiver, he was certainly one of the best deceivers that ever lived. I mean, no Jew would ever think of making such claims. Remember, Israel was the only nation who believed in one God. So for one man to claim that he was God, as Jesus repeatedly did, just wasn't done. The amazing thing, however, is that Jesus got the Jewish people to believe his claim. Lots of people Men and women and peasants and sophisticates and, and priests, eventually members of his own family. So if Jesus was a deceiver, believe me when I tell you he was the best. On the other hand, if he was a deceiver, Jesus was also the worst kind because then he deceived people into believing he was God. He led them to entrust their eternal destiny into his hands. He said people could count on him to remove their sins and to get them into heaven. That is wonderful news if it is true. And if it is not true, as someone once said, we are of all men most miserable. As C.S. Lewis says, Jesus Christ should be hated as a friend of hell because if it is not true, Jesus has condemned generations of gullible followers to a hopeless eternity. But of course, it is true. Jesus is the atonement, the only atonement for our sin, his blood, and he is the only way to God the Father. So saying Jesus was a deceiver, it just doesn't cut it because it doesn't coincide with what we know about Jesus, nor the results of his life, nor the results of his teaching. Josh McDowell writes, wherever Jesus has been proclaimed, lives have been changed for the good. Nations have changed for the better. Thieves are made honest, alcoholics are cured, hateful individuals become channels of love, unjust persons become just. Look, it, it, it does, doesn't make sense that someone whose entire ministry being based on deceit would have the kind of impact of people that, on people that Jesus had throughout the centuries. William Leckie, one of Great Britain's most noted historians, refers to Jesus' ministry, and he wrote this. The simple record of these three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. The point is this. Someone who lived like Jesus, Jesus lived, someone who taught like Jesus taught, someone who died like Jesus died could not have been a liar. Deceit of that kind of magnitude is just not a sufficient enough foundation to do all of that. Plus, here's one thing you will find throughout history. Deceivers will never die for their lies. I'm sure that if Jesus was just some kind of a, of a crafty trickster, he would have told the Jewish leaders as they were beating him, hey guys, I was just kidding, really. I was kidding. But he didn't because he wasn't. Then we see another viewpoint. Some say Jesus was a lunatic. And again, many say that of him today. Look at verse 20. 
You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? They told him, they said, you're out of your mind. You don't even know what you're talking about. And there are people who think if Jesus wasn't a liar, then isn't it possible that he just thought he was God? After all, it is possible to be both sincere and wrong, right? And I will agree that for someone to think of himself as being God, especially in that, that fiercely monotheistic culture like first century Israel, and tell others that he was God, and that their eternal destiny was based on believing in him, well, this is no fantasy. This is absolute lunacy. And what about this one? Could Jesus have been a lunatic? Could he have been a crazy man who just thought that he was God who came, became flesh? Was he the first person in history to ever have a Messiah complex? I mean, I've heard of this kind of thing. You and I have. When, when someone comes out nowadays and claims to be God, we call the guys in the white jackets and put them in a straight jacket so they won't hurt themselves, so they won't hurt others. But this one doesn't fly either, folks. Because in Jesus' life and in his teaching and, and in his ministry, we don't observe the kind of abnormalities and the imbalance that usually goes along with someone who is deranged. His poise, his composure were immaculate, unheard of, if in fact he were insane. Plus the truth is Jesus spoke some of the most profound sayings that have ever been recorded. You may recall when the temple guards went out to arrest Jesus, they came back empty-handed. You know what they said? They said, no one ever spoke like this man. Here's another thing to ponder. Jesus' teachings have actually healed people who have been plagued with mental disease. Psychiatrist J.T. Fisher puts it this way. If you were to take the sum total of all authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental hygiene, if you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out the excess verbiage, if you were to take the whole of the meat and loan of the parsley, and if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets, you would have an awkward and incomplete summation of the Sermon on the Mount, and it would suffer immeasurably through comparison. For nearly 2,000 years, the Christian world has been holding in its hands the complete answer to its restless and fruitless yearnings. Here rests the blueprint for successful human life with optimism, mental health, and contentment. In other words, Fisher was saying that Jesus' teachings are the most profound teachings ever spoken. A, de a diseased mind could not have said those things. And the biblical record shows that Jesus was the sanest man who ever walked the planet. He spoke with quiet authority. He was in control of literally every situation. He was never surprised and he was never rattled at anything that was said to him. 
So you can't make a case for the belief that Jesus was just a good man, and you can't say that he was a deceiver, and you cannot say that Jesus was crazy. And so that leaves us with only one other option that countless numbers of millions upon millions of people have concluded, and that is that Jesus is who he said he was. He is who he claimed to be. Jesus was and Jesus is the Christ. He is God's only son. He is the savior of this world. And there were many in that temple that day who believed. Look at John 7, 31. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? Of course, billions have since come to that same conclusion. And getting people to that conclusion is the sole purpose of John's writings, his gospel. Remember in John 21, he wrote this. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Because this is the most important decision that a human being will ever be faced with because it has eternal implications. You see, when John says that by believing you may have life in his name, he wasn't just meaning life as you trod the face of this earth. He's talking about throughout all eternity because one day our physical bodies are going to give way. They are going to wear out. They are going to die. But our spirit is eternal. It never dies. It continues to live. And where your spirit will spend eternity will be based on exactly what we've talked about today. Your decision to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Those who do, they will live eternally in God's presence whenever your time on this earth is through. And those who don't, I can't sugarcoat it like a lot of pastors do. You're going to spend eternity in hell. It's as simple as that. Total separation from God. Some people say you're going to go to another place, separated from God. No, you're going to go to hell. And if you read the Bible, hell is not a place you want to go. So this, my friends, is something that you've got to get right. You can't play around with this. There's just too much riding on this decision. You must make sure that you are reconciled to God the Father through faith in Christ Jesus. And if you're already reconciled in faith in, G in Jesus Christ, then you must stand firm in that decision that you made. The world is changing. We've gotta know who we are. We've gotta understand our identity. We've gotta stand up for Jesus Christ in a world that would wanna shut us down. So you must stand firm in the promises of God that are yours through Christ Jesus. Scott, will you and the worship team please come forward? Today, we are going to share in communion together. Because whenever we participate in communion, we are professing our belief that Jesus is who he says he is. When we eat of the bread, when we drink of the cup, we are bearing witness to our conviction that Jesus is God's only son and that he came to this earth to die on a cross 
for sinners like me and sinners like you. Why? So that we could obtain what we yearn for the most, a personal relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's a relationship in which he guides us through life, in which he gives us peace in our fear, in which he gives us purpose in our living. When we share this meal together, it's a way of proclaiming our belief that Jesus is indeed the bread of life, the very thing he said that that, that sent so many people fleeing, who has come, who has come to satisfy our deepest hungers. So I would like to ask the ushers to come forward. We're gonna go back to communion the old-fashioned way. We're gonna serve it to you.
Is there anyone who has not received communion emblems? If so, would you raise your hand? We'll see if somebody gets to you. Are we good in the balcony? As we enter into this sacred moment of the Lord's table, it's important to share that the Bible offers us instruction on how to do this. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through 29. It'll be up on the screen behind me. It says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. We are warned not to participate in communion in an unworthy manner, because communion was designed for those who are believers, those who are in a redemptive relationship with Christ. Your sins have been forgiven. You are now walking in the truth. So to participate in communion while not walking in the truth makes you, as the scriptures say, guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And so this is a time where it's very important for me to ask you, what is it that you believe about Christ Jesus? You see, there are some things in your life that you just cannot be neutral about. You can't be Switzerland for the rest of your life. <laughs> You've... You've got to make a decision. Jesus is one of those decisions. You can't say, well, the evidence is convincing that you've presented this morning, but I'm just going to pass on this decision for now. You can't say that because to make no decision is as good as denying him. That's what you're doing. It's equal to a no. So don't say no. Say yes. In a moment, we're going to pray. And I encourage all of you to stop and to pray and to invite Jesus into your heart and your life today. Admit to him if you are and you're not in a right relationship with Christ. Admit to him that you are a sinner. Tell him that you believe he is God's son and that, that he is the only way to God the Father. Ask him to forgive you of your sin and he will. You know, he carried your and my sin on that cross with him. And it is his shed blood, as I said earlier, that, that atones. It's his shed blood that, that covers our sin. And he will cleanse you today if you ask him. And you can do that through a simple prayer. And that will allow you not to only participate in this communion time, but it will make it a very real experience for you personally. And of course, you'll be doing it in a worthy manner. And I'm telling you, folks, if you pray that kind of a prayer and you don't know Jesus today, God will lead you into the truth. 
you will begin to live a different kind of a life with him guiding and directing your steps every day. It is a life that you can't do without. A life without Christ, in my mind, is not a life worth living. And for those of you who are already in a relationship with Jesus, that scripture that I read has a warning also in there for us, and it says we must examine ourselves. What that means is to make sure that we aren't carrying around any unconfessed sin, that we aren't harboring unforgiveness or, or bitterness in our hearts towards someone else. So we need to examine ourselves, and we need to determine if we are even resisting God's direction, God's purpose in our life. And if we are, we need to ask for forgiveness for that. We serve God to follow him, to follow his leadings. And if he's leading you in directions and you keep shutting him out, in my opinion, that is sinful. God wants you to have his best. He will never lead you into a place where he will not sustain you and grow you and stretch you and make you better than you were today. And if you find that any of that describes you today, then you need to make that a matter of prayer. And you can do so during this time. The point is this. We not only want to participate in communion by remembering what Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary, but we want to participate, all of us, and do so in a worthy manner with our hearts being right before God and leaving this place with our hearts being right with God. Because this time of communion, as I said, is not just a time where we remember and we rejoice what Jesus accomplished on the cross, but bottom line is we cannot do this in an unworthy manner. We cannot do this with sin in our heart. So let's take this time of silence where all you're going to hear is the music continuing to play in the background. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's spend some time confessing and communing with him as we pray for this sacred as we prepare for this sacred time of communion together. Father, you have read our hearts. You've heard our words. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to understand the importance of this moment as we remember that you did something for us that, that absolutely no one else could do. You set us free. You have forgiven us. You've offered us salvation. And for this, we thank you. Thank you for eternal life through Christ Jesus. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and after he had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said to his disciples, he said, this this bread represents my body that is soon to be broken for you. I don't think they understood exactly what that meant. Christ knew completely what it meant. And he told them, he said, every time you do this, I want you to remember me. So as you take of this bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of the body of Christ that was beaten and broken and battered for you. And that as the scriptures say, that by his stripes, you are healed. You may take of the bread. In the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink of this, he said, I want you to remember me and what I accomplished for you on the cross. So as you drink of this juice, I want you to be reminded of the blood of Jesus, the sinless, perfect son of God, whose blood was shed to cover and atone for you are in my sin. You may drink of the juice. Will you stand with us as we sing a song?
with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. The ultimate and only cleansing agent against the sin of this world, the sin in our hearts. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for the promise of eternal life in God's presence. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives in us and empowers us and strengthens us this side of eternity. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. Thank you for your amazing grace. Without it, uh, we would struggle so greatly. Thank you for all the many good things that you give to us. We give you praise and honor and glory today, Lord. We stand as a body unified saying, we believe you are who you are. And we believe that we cannot live without you. So I ask, Father, that you would just dwell in us, use us, help us to be the men and women of God that you need us to be, that we would, we would do the missions you have called us to do, that we would speak of your goodness to others. Father, I pray that as we go about our separate ways today, that your Holy Spirit would go with us, as it always does, but guide and direct our steps, our paths, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have. Lord, let those conversations be designed to build people up and never tear them down. Pray that we would be bright, shining lights in a very dark world, and that light would come shining through so brightly that people would know that we are safe, that if they've got issues, if they've got struggles, if they've got questions, that they know that we would have a kind answer to give them. And Father, when those doors open, as we know, you give us the words to speak. So I pray for opportunities for each one of us this week to share your goodness with another. Father, I pray that you would keep us safe, every one of us, continued safety from COVID, any other diseases or sicknesses that might befall us. Pray that you would keep us safe from any accidents that could occur between now and the time we meet together again. We want to continue to gather together as a family. We want to be able to come and worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, as I said in my opening statements, my prayer is that you would bring equilibrium to us individually and as a church that the off-balance nature of things over the last year and a half would balance out, that we would put our uniforms back on and that we would get into the game and that we would serve you and we would worship you in spirit and in truth and we would be obedient to your calling and to the things that you've asked of us. 
Most importantly, that we would shine your love into a world that so desperately needs it. Let us not get caught up in all the arguments going on in our country. Let us not uh, write people off because they don't agree with us, but let us somehow come together in a loving way and embrace one another. Try to help them to see the light of Jesus Christ. I guess I'm praying, God, that you would use us. Use us as a church in Red Bluff that can make a difference in the lives of others, each one of us individually. As we leave, Holy Spirit, guide and direct us. Use us this week. And as we leave here today and we, we go and have fellowship together, I pray your blessings over the food we're about to partake of. It would give us the nourishment that we need to do your will and your work within our family, within our community. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Thank you for being here today. God bless you.